Welcome back to Created for Connection, the podcast for church leaders and ministers looking for hope in seasons of struggle. In this episode, we sit down with Aaron Etheridge, campus pastor at Ethos Church in Nashville and director of Onward, an organization designed to equip, support, and send church planters all over the world. Listen in as Aaron shares his own story and the challenges he faced while planning churches in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hey listeners, let me just mention something to you real quick. Creative for Connection is in its first season and we need your help to get the word out. So make sure you hit the subscribe or follow button and share this podcast on your social media. Enjoy the show and remember, you are not alone. Hey, welcome back to the Created for Connection podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Shelby, and here with my co-host, Paul McMullen. Paul, you want to say hello? Hey, everybody. And uh, joining us today, we have one of our uh, great friends and, um, and just an incredible guy that we are excited to interview as our first interview, uh, Aaron Etheridge. Aaron, um, you have been in ministry for how many years now? Uh, full-time ministry since 2010. And then before that, I was, I was a marriage counselor uh, for several years and I did kind of part-time therapy and ministry for a couple of years. So been, been working with people for a long time since about 2005. Yeah. And so now you are the, uh, lead campus pastor for a church in Nashville. Is that right? Yeah, I'm the campus pastor for uh, the Cannery Ballroom location of Ethos Church. Um, Ethos is a church plant in downtown Nashville. We've got three different locations. The Cannery was our original location, and I was hired as campus pastor there yeah, in 2015. So I've been doing that for about six years now. Okay. And uh, Ethos has um, got a unique story. It's a, it's a church plant in Nashville that has kind of really taken off um, in the last five to 10 years. You want to talk a little bit about y'all's growth and what's been going on there? Yeah. I mean, Ethos launched, uh, I wasn't here. One of my, one of my best friends from like high school, uh, he planted the church in 2008 and uh, he and I kind of, we were running parallel paths, which will come out in our story today that uh, while I was planting a church in Canada, he was planting a church here in Nashville and uh, when I came back to the States, ended up coming down here. Uh, and at that point, Ethos was five years old uh, when we got to town and was two different campuses. Now it has grown to three campuses. Um, it's really hard to get a, you know, people always ask me, how big is Ethos? And it's hard to really say. Um, but, you know, I'd say we're probably around 2,500 people. Um, you know, the pandemic has made it even harder to count over the last year as to how big Ethos really is. But, um, you know, Ethos has a really, you know, a, a unique vision of we want to be a church planting church who's focused on making disciples. And uh, we do that through a variety of avenues. Um, one of those is the reason I moved to Nashville, which is uh, to start something called Onward Church Planting. And Onward kind of partners with Ethos. We raise up leaders uh, really around the globe uh, to disciple them and equip them to plant new churches that will reach new people and make new disciples. So a lot of fun, a lot of cool ministry stuff happening. 
Yeah, man, that's great. And um, and I've I've gotten to watch kind of from a distance while uh, Paul um, was was working alongside of you uh, as part of some of those uh, church plants that you were working on in the Northeast and in Vancouver. And um, and so, uh, Paul, you want to talk a little bit about your experience of of working with uh, Aaron as you guys were doing some of those church planting? Yeah, the the first thing I want to do is give you a, a little geography lesson, uh, Kevin, because <laughs> you said it was in the Northeast. Oh, did and, I? Um, you did, and I just just for your edification, uh, Vancouver is as far west as you can go, except for Vancouver Island, and that gets confusing for people because people take cruises and they think, "Oh, I've been to Vancouver." No, you've been to Vancouver Island and Victoria, so. I just wanted to, I don't know. I just feel the need to bring you down a notch sometimes. And, uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. That was, uh, I, man, you know, I just, uh, Melissa will thank you too. My wife, she, she'll be really happy that you, uh, gave me that lesson. She always rips on me because, uh, we were going to go to see old faithful and, um, I shouldn't tell this story cause I'm going to lose a lot of respect from a lot of people, but I honestly, You're assuming a lot of people will listen to this, right? <laughs> right. I'll lose my mom's respect at least. Um, I thought Old Faithful was a windmill. <laughs> <laughs> I really, legitimately thought it was a windmill. It might so. be. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just it's not just geography. It's also landmarks in the United States that I struggle with. So, anyways, yeah. tell me about your work in the Northwest with Aaron. Yes. And and I promised I'm not I, I I'm not going to do a lot of the storytelling today, even though I'm going to want to. But you know, little trivia, little Kevin, Aaron, Paul trivia is that once upon a time we were all part of a church planning team, uh, uh, with the with the initials SDM, and that's for another story <laughs> for another day. But um, so uh, Aaron and his wife Amy and my wife Julie and I. Um, moved to Vancouver, Canada, uh, around 2008, we got there within about six months of each other and we're part of a church plant up there, which Aaron's going to talk about some more, but, um, just the journey to the, the whole prep work for planting a church is a, is a journey in itself. And, and of course we bonded a lot through that experience, all the, um, the training that we did and the apprenticeships that we went through and then actually immigrating to another country. And, and you really, you bond a lot through going through uh, that sort of experience together. So we, we are um, Lord willing, we, we will always be lifelong friends with Etheridge's and we just had an amazing uh, experience with them in Canada. So I, again, I want Kev, I want uh, Aaron to get to share a lot of this story, but that's a little backdrop of it. Yeah. So Aaron, if we could just rewind all the way back to the beginning, why don't you talk to us about how did you get into church planting and really the story of, of um, kind of what your experience was getting to Canada and then planting churches there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of fun to get to do this with you guys because um not sure I ever would have ended up in church planting. Uh, I, I remember, I remember, I was in grad school to be a marriage and family therapist. Um, and Kevin, you actually invited me. You said, Hey, there's a group of us getting together just to talk and pray 
about what it would look like when we finish school to move somewhere together and do something different. And at the time it was like, maybe we'll move somewhere and start like a family retreat center. Maybe we'll plant a church. There are all different kinds of ideas. And I was super keen on it. I remember showing up to the very first meeting and there was this commitment to meet once a month to pray and fast together. And, you know, fasting gets a lot of airtime these days, but man, back in 2003, it's like, I didn't hear anybody talking about fasting. I was like, man, these, these folks are legit. They're like really, really interested in getting after it. And so, uh, so I started coming once a month. Um, and, uh, out of that long story short, met my, met my wife that, uh, Amy was a part of that as well. And so we ended up, I mean, our whole, our whole relationship has been built around, living on mission together and being dedicated to just uh, serving the Lord wherever he sends us. And so, uh, you know, we, we met together for several years as that group and the vision kept changing. Eventually uh, church planting kind of came to the forefront. We realized man, if we wanted to move somewhere where the church was not center stage in the culture. Uh, where we're going to be, you know, interacting with a lot of folks that don't know the Lord. And so um, again, there's so much we could unpack here, but we ended up deciding kind of the, the Northwest was our target area so we took a couple survey trips and I went to Seattle, went to Vancouver and there's just some amazing, really, I mean, the Lord just, just really paved the way, opened the door beautifully to show us Vancouver was the spot. Um, you know, he, I remember sitting in a room <laughs> with, uh, with some elders from a church in Vancouver and there were two of them and they were in the late sixties, early seventies. And we were a bunch of like 20 somethings, you know, and, they, they practically begged us to move there. You know, they said, hey, this, this area, this city needs the Lord, and we will do whatever we can to help you guys get here. And they said, and if our traditions get in your way, you feel free to give us the boot. We just want to help you move up here. And it was just such a beautiful picture of humility, and uh, they welcomed us. So, so, yeah, so we ended up choosing Vancouver as a place to live. Now, that team was at one point up to 12 people, and eventually – Due to a wide variety of circumstances, it dwindled down uh, to Amy and I and Paul and his wife, Julie. The four of us kind of ended up parachuting into, not not literally parachuting, but moving to Vancouver. It, it would have uh, been better if we would have parachuted. So It would have been it would have been so much more exciting had we actually parachuted in, but we did not. <laughs> All right. And so, like, at this point in the story, you you're in you're in uh, Vancouver, right? And so is it like looking around, like, what do we do now? What, what, how did you guys get the ball rolling on church planting and um, get to the point of meeting together on a regular basis? Um, you know, there's a lot of things I probably would have done differently had we had a chance to do it all over again. But I mean, we didn't really know. I mean, we'd, we'd gone through some church planter training, um, but man, we got on the ground. We didn't know anybody. Um, we, we kind of thought, we were kind of under this impression that we should, we should only look for people that don't know Jesus, that we shouldn't be open to, you know, other Christians. We were afraid that people would think we we're there to, you know, steal people from other churches or whatever. And so, man, we, we started off real slow and we started, I remember one Sunday, uh, Paul and Julie came over and uh, our little basement suite apartment and we worshiped together. Um, and we prayed this little prayer that night. We said, Lord, would you let this be the last time that it's just the four of us on a Sunday? And it actually was, it actually was the last time that was just the four of us. Um, you know, we started meeting people. We, we would walk through a neighborhood, you know, a guy doing poetry on the street corner. I'd go talk to him. 
and uh, you know, try to make spiritual conversation with him. And it was, and you know, we just make relationships where we could. Paul was working at Starbucks. Uh, my wife was in school. Julie was working. We joined neighborhood associations and community groups. And I mean, anything we could do. I went, I went door to door to every single uh, like kind of bar or restaurant on our street to try to meet the manager and trying to find space where we could meet. So it was just trying to get out, meet as many people as possible, build relationships with as many people as possible. And, you know, from that on, from then on, we started meeting every Sunday, probably prematurely. Um, not probably. We started meeting every Sunday prematurely. And, uh, but, you know, we, we had new people with us on a regular basis. Um, over the course of four and a half years, we had quite a few people that, that came across our path. So, yeah. And, um, you know, when you think about, just kind of that journey. I've heard you say a couple of things like I would do this differently. I've, you know, we didn't do this. Um, there's, it sounds like there's some stuff back there that you look back on and maybe you kind of regret the way that you did things or you feel bad or, um, I don't know. Talk to us about that. Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily regret it. We, we did the best that we knew how to do. I mean, we had, we had the resources we had, the training we had, and we did the very best. Now we had a, we had a unique vision. You know, we, we wanted, we were not trying to start one, a, a big church. We were trying to start a network of house churches. That was really central to our heart was we wanted to see a, a, a multiplying network of house churches that had a focus on discipleship. And, you know, we, the, the, the group that trained us didn't really have any other planters that were doing that. They'd never really seen it done very well. Um, and so we were, man, we were, it kind of felt like groping around in the dark sometimes. Uh, we'd try something and it would seem to go pretty well and then it would putter out and we'd have to kind of start all over again. And so I, I don't have any regrets. Uh, if anything, you know, and I don't want to get ahead of us here in the interview, but, you know, I mean, right now, a big part of my job, I'm the director of training for Onward Church Planting. And uh, God has taken so much of what we did in Vancouver and he's taught me so much that now I get to hand that off to other planters and um, get to be a part of seeing, I mean, churches planted all over the world right now. So I don't have any regrets, but I do look back and I see clearly some places where, man, if only we would have had somebody to come alongside us like this, if only we would have had this knowledge or this experience or this, you know, there's just so many different things that we did not have that I wish we did have, but I wouldn't say I regret it. So looking back in those years, and Paul, you can speak to some of this too, probably, you know, being a leader um, of, of a group of people and, or trying to lead out in these ministries, um, you know, that you're trying to form in a, in a place where it seems like it's kind of unreceptive in some ways. What was it like in, you know, kind of the just the stream of your life uh, in your thoughts and in your heart and your struggles. What was that part of it like for you? You, you know, for me, um, it's hindsight is 2020. I see a lot more. I see clearly now what I didn't realize was happening back then, but I realize now that I'd gone from a place of support and relative confidence in who I was and my calling and this sort of thing in the setting that I was in uh, with supporters and uh, churches giving us financial backing. And, and, you know, when you're going into a place where um, 
people are supporting you, you, you carry this esteem, like, okay, I, what I'm doing is valid. You know, I, people have respect for me. And then in real time, you know, when you're on the street trying to talk to people or I'm working at Starbucks and you just get hardly any traction and you're just like, I don't know what I'm doing and no one can tell me what to do. And I'm scared most of the time. And I feel kind of bad about myself, you know, like all of those sorts of, of, uh, challenges kind of crop back up to where I realized that I was pushed out kind of into the deep end of the pool or I felt that way. Um, and, and in many ways it was, we were there with the Etheridges and that was our lifeline. Like if we wouldn't have been tethered to them in terms of spiritual support, um, I wouldn't have made it very far at all. But, uh, what I, what I don't think I needed because I had come from a place of stability, I don't think I realized how much support I would need to go through that transition and to kind of be out doing that on my own. Yeah, no, man, I, I could totally understand what that, what that feeling would be like in terms of like, people are supporting me here. They're, they're giving money and I've got to produce something and I don't know how to produce it. And so the, in, in the shadows of your life, that's when struggle starts to creep in. Right. And, um, and so Aaron, I'm, I'm interested in your answer to that question too. What, what was it like for you kind of in those uh, darker periods where you're not able to, to know exactly where you're supposed to go or what to do? Yeah. I mean, it is it it really hard. Um, just so, so everybody listening knows, obviously that, that church that we planted doesn't exist anymore. I mean, we, we ended up closing that church down. Um, and uh, we had multiple moments, you know, we, we were in, we were in Vancouver for about four and a half years and we had multiple moments where we would have these hopeful breakthroughs and we had, we had such confidence in the fact that God had called us there. Like, I remember that just feeling so clearly called, like I knew, I knew it's where we were supposed to be. And so we would have these hopeful breakthrough moments, you know, getting to baptize a friend, uh, seeing a friend baptize his wife, you know, these, these incredible moments of breakthrough, but then they would be followed by just disappointment after disappointment. You know, we had, I said, I said, we never had a Sunday again where it was just, um, Amy and I and Paul and Julie, but man, we had multiple Sundays where it was just the four of us and one other person. And I, I remember we had our, our supporting church in Oregon, um, was sending up their, their pastor to come visit. And he and his wife came to see us. And I was, you know, I was like, okay, this is, you know, they're supporting us. We're trying to build up more connection with them. So they'll support us even more. And we had everything planned out and they came on a Sunday and they were the only ones that came. It was, it was Paul and Julie and me and Amy and Bruce and Julie White from Garden Way Church in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, man, I, I remember just being so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed because they came all the way up there. And the whole time I'm trying to convince them that, oh yeah, normally I'm like, I'm like naming the people that aren't there. Well, you know, so-and-so is not here because they're out of town right now. And so-and-so would normally be doing this, but they're not here. I baptized 20 people last week, I promise. <laughs> Yeah, it was just this, and they were so gracious. They were amazing. Um, but man, those, those moments, and we had a lot of visitors. Uh, we had folks that would come up from uh, Texas, from Paul and Julie supporting church, folks that would come up from Atlanta. 
there's a Christian college in Arkansas that uh, where we all went, they would send up spring break campaigns. And, you know, every time somebody came, there was this pressure to try to prove that what we were doing was legitimate, that what we were doing mattered, that it was making a difference. Um, and uh, man, it was just hard. There's a lot, a lot of pressure and a lot of that pressure just put on ourselves, you know, that we felt like it needed to look a certain way. And when it didn't, uh, it's hard not to feel like a failure sometimes. Yeah. So was that kind of the predominant message that you were experiencing during that time? I'm a failure. I'm, I don't know what to do, or can you talk about that? You know, like I said, like I said, it was, it was up and down. I mean, we'd have these moments of real joyful breakthrough and, you know, you could real we could really see that God was moving. You know, it, the, the whole journey wasn't just about, it wasn't just about trying to plant a church. There was so much that God was doing in us. Um, man, he grew me so much. I mean, I, I, I learned to hear from the Lord in that time. Like I, I did not know how to hear from God prior to living in Vancouver. I, I learned so much about the Holy Spirit and my dependence upon him. Um, and so, Yes, there were some real dark moments, but it was sometimes in those darker moments where the Lord was just stretching me, teaching me how to depend upon him, um, speaking to me in ways that he never had before. And so, yeah, it was like this real mix of um, feeling like a failure and yet also feeling like I, I still wanted to be something. Uh, yeah, God's still working in me, still teaching me moments of breakthrough and the moments of setback. It was just a total mixed bag. Um, but, it, you know, if you're asking about when my head hits the pillow at night, the, the dominant feeling that I felt during that time was, oh, man, now what? What's tomorrow going to bring? How are we going to make this work? How is it ever going to work? And um, that, that that weighed on me almost almost all the time, almost every day, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, that that makes total sense. So what, what led you guys to actually closing down the vine and what was that process like? Um, you know, I, I was the, I was the bad guy. I was, the, <laughs> I was the guy that ended up making the suggestion, uh, that, it, that I thought it was time. And, uh, you know, a, a, a year before, a little over a year before we had closed the vine, we had set some real measurable objectives, some real measurable goals. Like, hey, if, we're, if this thing's going to work, we've been at it for four years. We're like, if this thing's going to work, we're going to need this size of a team. We're going to need this many committed people, um, you know, and, and we really changed directions and found some new training, jumped into a cohort experience to learn. And, uh, and so over the course of that year, as we tried all these new things to work towards these new measurable objectives, things were going pretty well. Like we were excited. Like I was cautiously optimistic, like, Hey, this thing's actually taking off. Um, and I'll never forget. It was, we launched a, a missional community, um, in the fall and you know, we had, our, we had 20 some odd adults that were committed to being a part of it. And we were super pumped. And literally over the course of three weeks, that group of 25 people dwindled down to eight as we watched, you know, we watched a guy lose his job and he had to move to another province to find work. We watched a woman whose visa didn't go through. So she moved back to Europe. We watched a marriage kind of implode and some parenting issues creep in. Uh, we saw a guy tell us, you know what, I think I'm actually a universalist and I don't think this whole church plant thing is for me. We had a guy come out of the closet uh, as, as gay and, 
you know, we, we told him, Hey, you're, you know, we believe you can still walk with Jesus and we want it. We want to keep walking. He goes, no, I, I think I'm, I'm done with this church thing. I don't think I'm in the right spot to help you guys here. And, you know, it was, it was just like one after the other over the course of three weeks, we just, it would be a phone call and then an email. And then it was like, boom, boom, boom. And I remember we got to the end of it and it was Paul, Julie, me and Amy and four other adults that were left. And I just, it was, you talk about the wind being taken out of your sails. Um, we had very clear goals. We didn't meet them. And I kind of, to me, it felt like the writing was on the wall. Um, and we went from the highest of highs to launching that missional community to three weeks later, I'm sitting in my kitchen uh, with Amy and Paul and Julie telling them that, Hey, I think, I think we're done. I think the time has come. So it, it was hard. I, I remember it, it being extremely emotional um, the whole time. And I just to, to give some more context to what Aaron, that part, those three weeks, you know, this was year four of being there, of, of working in a church plant that had many different iterations to it. And so this, this wasn't like, um, you know, month uh, 13 or something like that. This was, <laughs> this was month uh, 48. And, um, and it was almost like we had just enough hope and energy and sense of calling to do this last push of missional community and we, uh, we didn't all feel the same way about it, but um, I remember there just this immense sadness uh, with that, with, with sitting at the table together. And not too long after that, that being mixed with a feeling of some relief too, which showed that there, there was just this huge burden that we were carrying that whether or not we should have been carrying it, that's up for discussion, but it was, there was sadness and grieving and then relief. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there was some sense that we all felt that in different ways. So you, you guys are both kind of shedding some light on, you got to this point of, we gotta, we gotta close this thing down and maybe you weren't at the same place at right at that time, but everybody got to the same place of, yeah, this seems like the right trajectory. What, what about after that? Once it's shut down, you feel the relief, but also you're looking back going, what happened? What was the fallout of that for you guys just in your internal world? You know, it, it was such a, it really was such a roller coaster. Um, you know, the night that we sat in my kitchen um, after Paul and Julie left, you know, Amy and I had one of the biggest fights of our marriage. Um, at, like I, I, I left, I, I stormed out of the house um, and I remember I drove and I, I parked in a parking lot that looked out over the water and I just, I screamed at God. Like I just yelled at him. I was so, um, you know, I felt like I was doing the right thing and then I do it. And then my wife gets mad at me because I didn't do it the way she wanted me to do it. And I just, I was done. You know, I left, I stayed out for several hours. My wife got real worried about me, called a friend of mine who, uh, who started calling me and I knew I needed to go home, but um man it was just so heavy it was just so heavy and then and then we had to start telling the people that were left you know those those four um those four committed adults that were with us they were frustrated they were hurt and we had to tell the churches in the area that had supported us and they didn't understand and but man the relief did come paul and i uh, paul named that you know i felt this relief of like okay i don't have to figure out how to make this work anymore and then then kind of came the 
okay, I need to help these folks that are left transition. And then came the, okay, now what? And Amy and I had this, we kind of just both said, you know, we're not going to think about what's next until we leave Canada. We want to spend the last, it was a few months, you know, we had a few months left. We want to spend the last few months on the ground being present with the people that are here and not spending our time constantly thinking about what we're going to do next. And I, you know, I don't regret that at all. Um, it, it really helped us to, you know, land some friendships really well, celebrate some of what God had done um, over those four years. Um, but then but it all shut down. We moved away. And then, and then it was like the, Oh, now what? Like I thought I was going to be doing this for another 10 years. And now I'm back in the United States. I don't know. We don't know what we're going to do. Um, and so that, that was an interesting process. Um, and I, you know, I don't know how much you want me to say about that, but um, yeah, it, it was, there was, there were ups and downs as we prepared to kind of close things down. But after, after we left, I'd, I'd say definitely a sense of relief, but a sense of like, I carried this label. I felt like I was a failed church planter. I felt like that was my, that was my new title, Aaron Etheridge failed church planter. And that stayed with me for years. It was really hard for me to to shake that sense of who I was. Was there grief attached to that or shame or how would you describe that? Uh, yeah, both. I mean, there was definitely shame, uh, especially, you know, my best friend from high school has planted this church in Nashville and it's going gangbusters. And here I am coming back to the United States, tail between my legs, felt like a failure, felt ashamed um, that I wasn't able to do the thing that I wanted to do or that I thought God wanted me to do. There was a ton of grief. I mean, lots of, we grieved a lot. And that, that was one thing, Amy and I, we took six months. Uh, we were so blessed. Our our supporters, um, we kind of reached out to them and said, hey, we don't know what's next. We would love it if you guys could continue to support us for at least six months as we try to figure out what's next. And they did. And so we had six months in Eugene, Oregon, where we got to, you know, for the first two months, we just tried to reestablish rhythms as a family. Um, we didn't, you know, we didn't think about what was next. I didn't send out any resumes. I wasn't looking for work. We had two months where we just enjoyed one another. At the time, we just had our two sons. Um, and uh, man, it was, it was really great, but also really hard. You know, we, we grieved a lot um, during that time. Paul, what about you? What was what was that afterward experience like for you? Yeah, it's it's interesting as I've I've learned in the last eight years since then um, that the idea of the body keeping the score, and so even as we're talking and, and Aaron is sharing that story, I'm feeling uh, you know anxiety creeping up. I'm feeling that sadness uh, of reliving some of those moments. Um, but Aaron saying, uh, you know, going back to the States with your tail between your legs and, uh, that, that stigma of failed church planner, um, that was definitely there. In fact, there was a guy, there was a Canadian, uh, I, I think an elder in the church and kind of, uh, that, that we had met that had actually been a, a supporter, um, uh, in a different part of Canada. And there's, there's some people in more central, the plains, Canada, uh, one of their gifts is being really straightforward. <laughs> and so I remember him saying to us at one point, he's like, so are you going to go back to mom and dad with your tail between your legs? <laughs> and 
I was like, uh, I, I think I am. I think I'm going to go back to my parents <laughs> and, uh, and just mope for a little bit. But, uh, and you actually that did, was, right? You went back to your parents' uh, house for a little while. Well, we did travel that while the Etheridges were in Eugene. Um, we, we traveled and stayed with different family members and, and visited different friends and uh, kind of took a little little tour just to um, uh, just to take some time for ourselves. But I remember him saying that put words to some shame that I was feeling around. Oh, am I, am I, was it just, I just couldn't take the heat or this was just, it was hard, but part of my leaving is just because I, I don't have what it takes or I don't have the stamina, you know, to get through this. And, um, which is just, you know, just for me, it was like, I could beat myself up like, oh man, you just, it's not, it's not just that it was hard. It's like, I just didn't have what it took. And, um, no matter what other people said to me, um, that was encouraging. Still, those questions would come up from time to time. Like, yeah, I probably just wasn't tough enough to make this thing work. Yeah. That, that, that failed church planner identity piece, um, played me for years afterwards. Um, you know, I ended up, ended up moving to Nashville obviously, and, uh, got here on the ground and, honestly felt like I was living in my friend's shadow for much of the time, even though, even though he treated me like an equal, he invited me to like, we were starting a church planting training experience, a family uh, with onward. And uh, like, he's always let me know, Hey, you're very much, you're, you're a co-founder with me. Like you helped me found this global family of church planters. But early on, it just like, I always felt like, yeah, I'm the, I'm the guy, I'm your friend that you had to bail out because my church plant failed and you threw me a bone and let me come, let me come tag along with you. That, that's what I felt inside. And even when, even to the point where I, I thought I had dealt with that, uh, I got several years onto the ground here in Nashville and, uh, and thought that that had gone away, that I had, I had dismantled that, like I'm a failed church planner. <clears throat> and I'll never forget, I had a, uh, uh, an inner healing prayer session a freedom prayer session and you know was shocked as i'm sitting there like wrestling out with god uh, with a with a brother and sister in christ that that's that's the piece of identity god wanted to deal with in me was that i was still walking around like i was a failed church planter and it was affecting the way that i was leading it was affecting the level of confidence i had when 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 i was asked to lead i mean here i was the campus pastor at our largest campus leading the ministry teams and yet every time i sat in the leadership seat it was in the back of my mind. Everyone in here is looking at me and what they see is Aaron. Yeah. He can preach pretty well. He can teach, he can train, he can disciple. But at the end of the day, he's still a failed church planner. He's a little bit lower down on the totem pole than everybody else. And I felt like everybody saw that in me. Um, and it really took the Lord kind of pulling that out and healing it and speaking into it to, to bring me some healing. Man, I, I'm really, um, I'm really thankful for that part of your story. Um, not just the the part where God showed you a different identity, but also like that you can voice the season of life that you you kind of walked around with an identity that that you weren't meant to have. And um, there's a lot of reasons for for the identity that we take on when things like this happen, right? And so, like, you know, 
in the story, we want to, we, we typically, I think, want to, you know, get to the redemptive part, but there's also a really important uh, part of, of your story that you lived in this season of, I'm just a failure. I'm a failed church planner. Um, you know, and I think that with that kind of in mind, I'm wondering what, what type of pressures, what type of things do you think that the, the church puts on us to measure church planning success the way that it does in order to leave us feeling like failures if we don't have numbers? Uh, what type of pressures come from the church itself, you, you're saying? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's fair to say it's the church. I, I do think the, the, the model of, of the Western church, and it's not even just the American church. I mean, now in the position that I'm in now, I'm, I'm discipling church planters in Macedonia and Kenya and Uganda and Portugal. And it's like, these guys are all feeling the same thing. And so it is, it is the Western church. It's a certain approach to church that, that your, your identity somehow is connected to your ability to gather a crowd to make this sustainable thing that launches and goes and reproduces. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think some of that is, it's not even just the church. It's just, it's just our, our fallen tendency in some ways. Like we, we tend to want to find our identity in what we do or in what people think about us. And that was never meant to be where we find our identity. And so even if you go through the perfect church planter training and you have the, the most supportive, amazing sending church that's, supporting you financially, emotionally, spiritually, you can have all those things in place. And yet at the end of the day, if you haven't dealt with that place in your heart, that's still finding your identity based on what you do or in what people think about you, then you're going to end up with the same pitfalls. And so I think, I think some of it is the pressures of the church, the model, the American kind of, you know, bigger is better. That whole thing definitely plays into it. Um, but at the center of it all is just this place in the human heart that, we build our identity on the wrong things. And, and that ends up being, I think the greatest pressure that we feel. Yeah. Paul, what would you uh, say to that as well? I, I just think that um, it certainly isn't just in the church planning world. Um, I think that it is, that that's a broad pressure that is in in any church ministry and probably in, I mean, it, it's definitely across uh, as Aaron was sharing, this is, this is an identity struggle, probably regardless of what, what world, what kind of uh, organization you're even a part of. Um, I'm thinking of a, a Weezer song from uh, the okay human album that says numbers are out to get you. Uh, they'll kill you if they get through. <laughs> and it's just this idea that, you know, numbers are, um, the, as they define it, if we let a number define us uh, and be our guide to whether I'm good or not, um, it's just setting up, um, it, it's setting up a messed up identity to live out of, to live from that is completely based on uh, this perception of whether I've achieved something or I, people are perceiving me as successful. And um, we're just, 
the world is just far too out of our control uh, for us for that to be uh, a sustainable way to to gauge our our value and our worth it's just not it's not trustworthy and it's not true it's not true based on who we are and who we've been made to be by god but there is man there's just so much pressure to feel like i am good if what i am a part of is good and what good is is success based on some kind of numeric value yeah and i could see that um somebody you know let's say somebody's listening to this story and i could see them kind of thinking okay um you know that sounds good uh but you know is that not just you making yourself feel better about about having to leave vancouver you know and i'm interested to hear what would you say to somebody who's thinking that or who's, I guess, is just kind of judging the experience based on the fact that like you guys came back and, you know, the, the church failed and all of those things. Um, I want to hear what Aaron says first. <laughs> uh, is this person being nice or are they, uh, <laughs> how I respond to them would uh, be impacted by their, their attitude of me. Um, no, you know, I, I, I remember I, I called a mentor at the time when, when Amy and I, before we even had a chance to talk to Paul and Julie to tell them we were thinking that it was time to shut things down. I called this mentor and, um, you know, I'm just totally distraught. I'm just, we're thinking about shutting down the church plant, you know, and it feels like just the end, you know, everything I've ever lived for now is coming to an end. And this guy uh, had the advantage of multiple decades on me. And so he, he kind of just laughed. He said, Aaron, how old are you? I said, I'm 33. And he just kind of smiled, you know, kind of laughed. He's like, Oh boy. He's like, you have so many years left to live. And, and I remember at the time it felt kind of, you know, patronizing a little bit, but, I look back on it now, uh, you know, this is almost a decade ago and I'm like, man, he was so right. Um, I, 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 there's no part of me that needs to justify or placate or make myself feel better for the decision that we made in Vancouver. I, I look at the fruit that God has born. I look at what he's done in my life and the lives of those around me. Um, I'm like, man, that was part of the journey. It really was. And, uh, you know, if you want to define success or failure by how many people are sitting in the church pews, you know, what, what's real interesting, perspective gives you so much. Every church has a life cycle. Every church. The church, you know, if you're listening to this, the church that you're worshiping in, it had a birthday and it will have an end date. Like the, the church that the Apostle Paul planted in the city of Ephesus is not there anymore. Like every church has a life cycle. And you know, this life cycle of this little church we planted in Vancouver was four and a half years. And the Lord did some good things through it. He used and leveraged our obedience to help people come to know Jesus who are still walking with Jesus. And he used that time to shape me and grow me because he had bigger things for me in the years that were to come. Um, and so, you know, success and failure is so subjective, especially when you start looking at things from God's perspective, this eternal perspective, understanding that every church is born, every church dies, just like all of us. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but uh, I, I don't, I, there's no part of me that feels like I need to justify our decision or just try to soothe my own feelings to make me feel better. Um, too much, too much water under the bridge since then. Yeah, to do definitely. That. Paul, what are, what are your thoughts? 
I mean, if I'm the guy that asked Aaron that question, like I'm, I'm in tears right now and just saying, amen, you are so right. Like, I'm, I'm sorry I ever said that. <laughs> but, <laughs> no doubt. I, I'm actually, I'm actually in tears right now because I asked the question. I didn't even. <laughs> yeah. You should feel a little bit bad. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, just to, uh, I, I like to take both sides of the coin, but insofar as a number represents a, a person that has been made by God, insofar as is, you know, saying this is how many people have converted to Christianity or been baptized or whatever, um, that, that represents God's work and, and change in their life. I mean, it's something to be celebrated and it is good. Um, and so there's not, it's not that those things don't have value or to plant or to say, this is how many churches have been planted and this, and this sort of thing. Um, it's just, it's just that it, it's so tempting to get caught up in, in something that we have so little to do with in the end. And I just think the, theologically holding on to that, um, those verses from John 15, where Jesus says, you know, I am the vine and you are the branches, which is why we, I mean, we were inspired by that verse to, to name the church plant, the vine. But he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, you know, but if you remain in me and I, my word remains in you, you will bear much fruit. And so I just think that is the theological conviction that, that we want to expect fruit in our lives and in other people's lives. But that's all just completely dependent on the flow of the Holy Spirit through that connection with Jesus into um, uh, the life of, of the body of Christ. And so... Um, we do want to see growth and change, and, and but it's just completely, it, it, it's as much, it's just us being a conduit and we are not in control of how that looks. Um, I think we can just push against it if we want. I mean, I'm enough of an Arminian to think we can, we can push against it, but I still, I'm enough of a Calvinist at this point to say God can still do whatever he wants, even when I'm pushing against it. So, um, yeah, that's a bit of my my thinking on it. Looking well, back. you know, both of you have kind of touched on this, and I I think that the church has put a lot of pressure on, um, or or maybe not the church, people in the churches that we've we've been a part of through the years, that they put a lot of pressure on the verses that Jesus talks about bearing fruit, and the the idea of bearing fruit at least in my tradition, has always been linked to how many numbers you get, right? How many people you baptize. And I think that maybe a better way of looking at that is bearing fruit has more to do with identity, accepting the identity that we've been given and how, how well that is, how that is happening in our lives and how we're seeing it happen in the lives of the people around us. And so I'm interested in how that, impacts your your view of things as well i'm laughing as you say that because i remember i had this clear memory when we were in in canada uh i think a group came from a church in texas and there was this kid that was in the group oh no no paul you were visiting a church in texas and he was sharing the story about what god's been doing in vancouver and this like 15 year old or 14 year old kids like how many people have you baptized <laughs> <laughs> And Paul's like, well, uh, and, and this kid starts, <clears throat> he starts telling stories about 
when he went on a mission trip somewhere and they baptized all these people and how come you guys aren't doing that in Canada? And it was like being shamed from the youth group, you know? So, you know, I, I do think, I do think fruitfulness, it is, it is definitely connected to the making of disciples. I mean, you know, we are to bear fruit. We are to make disciples this is the last thing Jesus told us to do, you know, go and make disciples. I'm <clears throat> going to all the nations and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So that is a, a part of our fruitfulness. However, if you go about trying to bear the fruit of making more disciples and in the process, you lose who you are as a child of God because you're so bent on numbers, um, then, you know, one, that is going to start impacting the type of disciple you're making. And you're going to start doing the very thing that Jesus said to the Pharisees is as you tie up these heavy bundles and you don't lift a finger to try to help them lift them. You know, it's like, that, that when you when you start feeling like man in order for me to be a good enough christian i have to bear this many you know bear this much fruit make this many disciples well the disciples that you're making guess what they're going to carry that same burden on their own shoulders and you know so i, I think it's the, the fruitfulness is both an internal fruitfulness and an external fruitfulness there is an external fruitfulness of making disciples and if somebody wants to come and say well you're not very successful i'm probably going to turn around and say hey how many personally, how many disciples have, have you made or are you making right now? That's the bigger question, not how big is your church? How many people are you personally discipling to know Jesus more intimately? But, but so, you know, so there's this external fruit of making disciples, but there's this internal fruit as well that is the fruit of the Spirit. It, it is, hey, as I make disciples, am I a person that is marked by love and joy and peace patience, kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control, and faithfulness, you know, am I, am I exuding those things as I make disciples? Because both of those things are connected to your fruitfulness, and I think both really matter. You know, it's really interesting that Jesus, and, and you know, the, the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, you know, and, and this happens over and over again in these parables of Jesus says, he looks at me, he says, away from me, I never knew you. There's this intimacy this knowing of Jesus that is so crucial, so crucial that, you know, you could have the biggest church, you'd have the most seats filling the pews or the folding chairs or whatever you use, and you could lose your intimacy with Jesus in the midst of trying to get there. And that, that is a failure. That is a travesty and a real tragedy in the kingdom. And so fruitfulness, I think the internal and the external both matter. Yeah. And I think the, the most important thing about what you guys have shared today is that you were drawn deeper into the intimacy with Christ through the process of struggling. And that was formative for you internally, right? As you look back. And I think that kind of reflects this idea, you know, when you were talking about identity, Aaron, I was, uh, it made me think of Matthew three um, and verse 17, where, where Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And it says that the Holy Spirit descends on him and a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love in him I'm well pleased. And, and the identity of son is given and it's because of that God loves him and it's because he loves him that he's pleased with him, not in the reverse, that you do all these things and though and therefore I accept you right? As my son. Uh, we're, and I think that's the same path we follow. And when we, when we 
allow that identity to sink in to who we are, that is what causes the, you know, the discipling and the fruit to happen. Um, yeah. And if, you, and if you keep going with that story, <clears throat> I mean, immediately after he's baptized, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. You know, I, you know, so often God gives us our identity. He gives us, he speaks to us. He affirms us in who we are and you can be led by the spirit and filled by the spirit and still life can feel like hell. Like Jesus gets out of the water and he goes into the wilderness and, and the father no longer is going, Hey, I'm your dad. I'm your dad. I'm your dad. Instead he hears the enemy going, Hey, if you really are the son of God, it's like immediately after being affirmed in his identity, the enemy starts trying to attack his identity and Jesus has to lean back on what his father has already said is true about him. Mm. And, and I, I think it's so important in ministry, man. When, when you get called, when you feel called to ministry, that is such an affirming thing. It's such the father going, hey, I see you. I've chosen you. I've called you. I've got good things for you. And we should never be surprised that not long after we're called, we go through one of the roughest spells of ministry. Or not long after God affirms something in us that the enemy comes and tries to dislodge it out of our hearts. Like it, it happened to Jesus. It will happen to us. Mm. And going through the wilderness is not a failure. Going through the wilderness is being refined. It's, it's like affirming the identity that God's trying to give in you. I love that. Yeah. Um, it, it's making me think as you're saying that, Aaron, and I think you're speaking to this, but I want you to speak a little bit more. There was a, I guess it was a Gallup poll, uh, you know, in the last month about church attendance, you know, being at its lowest point uh, and, and dropping um, and some of that having to do with COVID, but it's also just like, it's just part of a, a normal decline. And I'm, I'm wondering about those leaders that are seeing their churches um, or their ministries, their nonprofits that are not being supported anymore and they're seeing and they're experiencing that decline right now. And they're wondering if this is going to be kind of the end of what they've invested themselves in. How do they, how do they, you know, gird up their loins, you know, in KJV language for the season that's coming, how do they approach that without losing their identity in their, um, in their confidence in, in what the Lord's doing in them? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and this is a hard, I mean, we're in a hard, hard time. Uh, I, I'm, we're, we're seeing right now in our church, it's like we're seeing this upheaval of pastoral needs on the other side of the pandemic um, because it's not just in the church world. I mean, people are, it's, it's suddenly all the kind of the, the wreckage of the pandemic life is starting to come to the surface in people's lives. And you know, I know that's true for many pastors. They're watching their church attendance decline. You know, I don't, I don't have a, a silver bullet answer, obviously, but I am firmly convinced that the most important thing is to guard your, your intimacy with the Lord, to guard your heart, like stay connected to him. Jesus in the wilderness, you know, being attacked by the enemy, what did he do? He, he kept going back to the promises of scripture. He kept going back to these words from Deuteronomy 8, you know, this, this place where uh, Moses is trying to, to get the people's attention and keep them connected to Yahweh God. Like this is, this is where Jesus goes. He goes to the word. And so I think for us, it's like, if you're going to feel it, if your numbers are lower, 
you're going to feel that, man, if your identity is too closely connected there, you're going to know right away. Uh, if your security is too closely connected there, you're going to know right away because you're going to feel this sense of despair, this sense of fear, this sense of what's next. And I think it's just so important that in that, those are the moments you keep coming back to the Lord, like get in the word, take a retreat, spend some time fasting, like just seek him. It's like, if you lose your ministry, you don't want to lose your faith. Like that's one of the biggest things I take away from Vancouver is man, I lost this church plant, this dream. I mean, I dreamed of it for years and then it fell apart. And what I had to, what I had to deal with was like, okay, am I going to lose my faith in the one who called me because it didn't go the way I wanted it to? Or am I going to really trust that all these things I've been teaching people are true? and cling to him and his goodness, even when things are falling apart right in front of my face. I think it's just so important. Man, that's so good. And, and, you know, like there are so many challenges that the church is facing right now and pastors, especially preachers, ministers, in the sense that, you know, we, we had all this separation from one another for a year or more. And now we're coming back trying to have conversations with each other and we don't have the strength of relationship that we had a year ago, you know, trying to hash out difficult decisions and not to mention that there are no norms. Everybody has their own interpretation of how to do any type of social interaction, right? Like your, your limitation is going to be different from mine. So it's all defined by people who default to the most fearful way of, of handling things. And there have been a lot of rules socially that have changed, you know? And, and so navigating all of those things is naturally going to look like, wow, things are falling apart. But I, I, I would also say that, you know, I heard somebody say recently, if, if, if the church if Jesus hasn't come back, then the church's best days are to come. And so, you know, thinking about what the pandemic has exposed within us and our hearts and the things that we turn to when we feel alone um, gives us an opportunity to finally do something about it instead of just living in the shadows. You know, so I'm interested, Aaron, you know, if, if you know, you know, if you were going to be talking to somebody out there who's struggling, they're, they're suffering or struggling in silence, what, what would you say to them as far as how to, how to take the next step? One, you know, what I've already said, I think it can feel kind of frustrating at times. I think what I've already said is, man, you've got to press into the Lord. Whatever that, whatever that looks like for you. And sometimes that can be really hard and really frustrating thing to hear because, well, I've tried that. I've, I, I try to pray and it feels like I'm praying into the air, you know, and I've been there. I, I, I get up early in the morning and I'm trying to read my word, the word, and I'm falling asleep in the middle of it and I'm just frustrated. So it's like, I understand, man, just keep, keep coming back to the Lord. And really it's not about your behavior. It's about the posture of your heart. Keep your heart tender before the Lord. Keep your heart humbled before the Lord. Keep, keep your heart just soft before him in, in awe and reverence and respect. And, and don't allow the enemy to get you to this place where you're assuming God is just, he's no good and he's out to get you. And it's like, man, just keep your heart in that soft place towards the Lord. He loves you, like love him. 
But I think the other, the other thing there is you've got to find a place to talk about it. You, you've got to find a safe place to be able to express the things that you're feeling. And I feel so fortunate, you know, the context that I'm working in now, I'm, I'm on a team and some of my closest friends are on this team and I, I can be as completely honest as I want to be. You know, I'm, I'm super close with all of our elders. I mean, I could call any one of my elders and go to dinner and pour my guts out. I know they would love me and support me in the middle of it. Um, and I know not everybody has that. And so I, I would just encourage you, man, find somebody, find, find a, another minister in town, find somebody, a friend, an old friend. Um, you've got to find a place to be able to process some of what's going on in your heart. Otherwise, it will just, it'll just swallow you up. And being trapped in your own head with your own thoughts of despair, um, it is it is the worst place to be, and it all it, it really gives the enemy a field day. You know, when you're alone and you don't have anybody else to speak truth or to speak into your life, the enemy just comes in. And a lot of those thoughts that you're thinking, they're not even your own thoughts. It's the enemy accusing, attacking, condemning. So, so yeah, I mean, a, a simple answer: stay humble-hearted and tender before the Lord. And find a place, a safe place to be able to process some of what you're feeling, some of what you're fearing. Yeah. So maybe uh, as we're coming to a close here, um, is there one resource that you can think of that would be a, a great place for them to turn if they can't find that one person, any resource? Or you mentioned freedom prayers earlier. I don't know if that's something that you, you might push people towards. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean... I yeah, I mean, you know, inner healing prayer has been a huge part of my journey. Um, when I was in Canada, was a part of a, a prayer ministry that was really, really big for helping me process some. It's, it's where the Lord, I, where I would say I, I really met with Jesus personally, intimately for the very first time in my life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, inner healing prayer, uh, freedom prayer is one model of that. That's what we do here at Ethos. Um, but freedom prayer, I know, um, is kind of spreading. There's a lot of churches that are kind of starting to do that. Uh, I would also say spiritual direction. You kind of got to be careful of that. Sometimes spiritual direction can get a little, a little wonky, but man, you find a good spiritual director that really loves the Lord. Um, I, I had a spiritual director in Canada that really helped me process some really painful stuff uh, in my own family uh, when we were up there. And, and then, you know, finding a good Christian counselor, that'd be another, another good outlet. Uh, find a counselor who, you know, loves the Lord, um, having it again, just having a, so much of it is just having a place where you can talk and where you can process and you can start putting words and, and names on the feelings that you have, the fears that you have. It's getting them out of the dark recesses of your mind and your heart and out into the open, into the light. And that's where the spirit will begin to be able to work on your heart. So, so you know, inner healing prayer, spiritual direction, counseling, I think any of these are really good resources and nothing to be ashamed of. Like never be ashamed because you have to ask for help or because you want to see a counselor. It's like, man, it just shows that you're human. Like it shows that you're human and you were designed to be in community with other humans. Like this is good. You're an image bearer of God. So don't be ashamed of saying you need a place to process. That's great. Yeah, um, and the ministry at, at, uh, that's kind of housed within Ethos, you can you can contact them at freedomprayer.org. Um, that I would highly recommend reaching out to them if you don't have some place in your area. And they will do stuff online, right, Aaron? 
Yeah, freedom, freedomprayer.org. Um, and that's kind of their training hub. So they train churches to launch a freedom prayer ministry. Um, you know, if you if you're wanting a freedom prayer time, I mean, we do we do online freedom prayer even out of out of ethos. And so you could go to ethoschurch.org forward slash freedom prayer and you could sign up for a prayer time. Um, and, you know, we, we could get you connected with somebody that could do it via Zoom. Um, and, uh, and if you're interested in, in doing more of that, then freedomprayer.org would be kind of the way to go. Awesome. Well, Aaron, this has been a, an amazing conversation. And uh, it's been not only good to, to see your face and talk to you because I miss you and uh, love spending time with you, but also because, you know, there's parts of the story that I hadn't heard. And, um, and I think it's going to be meaningful for our listeners out there. Um, Paul, you want to say a few words as we wrap it up? And um, hey, hey, before we do that, I've got to just because Paul was so quick to correct you, Kevin, on your geographical blunder. Um, Paul had a had a bit of a musical blunder earlier. He he referred to the band Weezer and an album by Radiohead. And so I don't know oh, which, yes. which one he meant, but you know, I, I'm I just it's only fair. It's only fair that that we correct uh, him as well. And Paul Paul really prides himself on knowing his music. So that's that's he's turning red right now. I'm glad thank you, Aaron. Thank I, you for that. I, I am searching for the validity of, of this critique right now. I'd like to defend myself. <laughs> we'll we'll uh like saying I'm a failed church planner. We'll, or something. Uh, we'll let our <laughs> listeners sort that one out, but uh, that's right. <laughs> Still a good song numbers by Weezer, but um, man, Aaron, I just uh, love you so much brother. And I'm thankful. Um, I'm thankful that it seems like each year that passes since our time in Canada together, um, the Lord keeps showing us and, and revealing new things about, what he was doing and in the significance of it. Um, and, but, but as you shared today, uh, so many just words of wisdom and grace, I think for, even for me, just hearing you talk, uh, it was good to hear. And I just hope that, that others that have, that um, have heard this from whatever, whatever your world is looking like, I, I you know, a lot of this is for church leaders, but uh, for whoever's listening to this and you just feel like, um, man, it, um, things have been rough lately. You know, am I, <laughs> have I performed enough, you know, are my numbers good enough and whatever that might look like in your context. And I just, I just want, um, God to speak grace over that, uh, to people and just to, almost an invitation to say, come to me. I just want, I want to, uh, tell you about your sonship, your daughtership again, how much I love you. And we'll go from there. We'll worry about, you know, the fruit later, but I just want to pour out my love to you today. And I just hope that people heard that through this conversation in your words. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It was an honor to get to be here. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that wraps it up for today. Um, and so stay tuned for more interviews to come. Um, and I'm thankful that we have this platform to be able to, to share with people and hopefully help those who are struggling in silence or in, in the dark to, to find ways to get connected and be able to, to come out of some of that, to actually draw deeper into the Lord because that's where, that's where our refuge is. And so I thank you guys for, um, for your words of wisdom and truth today. And 
hopefully uh, there will be those that are blessed by it to come out of the darkness. We hope you enjoyed the show today. Special thanks to Aaron Etheridge for joining us. Also, I want to send out a big thank you to Cheyenne Metters, who created the awesome music for our show. You can check him out on iTunes for all of his albums. And don't forget to subscribe or follow us and check out the show notes for all information and resources we discussed in the show today. Have a blessed day. And remember, you are not alone.